Hello, hope you're having a beautiful day. Welcome to the Herbal Hour Podcast, the podcast for natural wellness, natural medicine, and all things alternative. Bringing together experts, natural doctors, naturopaths, homeopaths, herbalists, and all other healers and lay people interested in healing through nature. This is your host, Dr. Bogdan, or as I go by, Dr. Dan. I am a doctor of naturopathic medicine practicing in Portland, Oregon. Today we have a lovely guest, and this is one of my favorite conversations. We have here with us today, Dr. Kirsten Wilson. She is a fellow naturopathic doctor practicing in Portland and went to the same school that I did, National University of Natural Medicine. With a doctorate in naturopathic medicine, as well as a bachelor's in athletic science and training, she comes here with uh, deep expertise specifically in the conditions of neurology, sports medicine, and my favorite topic, shamanism, which is going to be the primary topic of this week's episode. Being that we both focus a lot of our clinical work in the treatment of mental health and mental health disorders, this will be another topic that is very prominent throughout this episode. The question that we will discuss is how can the shamanic traditions be a part of healing? How can we better understand shamanism? What are some of the traditions, the techniques? What is the way to understand psychology, our own minds through these ancient traditions, as well as how do we apply them in everyday life? For those who may not be familiar, shamanism is the long tradition throughout all of the earth, every region, that has a history going back thousands and thousands of years, possibly to the earliest humans that we have recorded records of. Shamanism are all those practices which use ritual, energetics, magic, changes in consciousness, sacred medicines, entheogens, psychedelics, and other tools like dance, art, and all methods that bring what Mircea Eliad called ecstasy, meaning to be free from the constraints of the body and to journey in unseen realms, to gain insight and to heal ourselves. You are someone who loves learning about the body, about nature, and about health from a more holistic perspective, using the healing powers of nature and innovative and out-of-the-box approaches to healing, please subscribe to this podcast if you like. My goal in starting the Herbal Hour podcast has always been to spread the gifts of nature through discussions that are based on the things that inspire us most within our respective fields. So many of the episodes of this podcast are with naturopathic doctors, homeopaths, practitioners of shamanic techniques, herbalists, nutritionists, anyone who has an interest in in health and working with healing from the more what could be called integrative sphere, meaning combining together the best of science and the best of traditions and folk herbalism and all those as of yet undiscovered ways to really bring us to a state of health. So thank you so much for listening. I have a special announcement for the listeners of the Herbal Hour podcast, especially those who are in Oregon. A few months ago, I started my naturopathic medical practice. The clinic is called Holistic Psyche Natural Care Clinic, and it's located in North Portland. If you'd be interested in a free consult, please give me a call at 503-303-303. 0930 or visit holisticpsyche.com to see articles on all the different approaches to mental health through a natural viewpoint, as well as information about microdosing for those that are interested in the topic, and the ability to schedule a free consult with me where we can talk about the the issues that have been troubling you and how I can help. I am primarily an herbalist a nutritionist, and a Jungian psychologist in my approach to health. My main focuses being all chronic diseases, particularly those related to mental health 
hormones, gastrointestinal diseases, and all of those conditions, which as of yet remain a medical mystery. And those are the ones that interest me the most. And for all those lovely listeners who would be interested in wellness guidance or natural health coaching, I just started a new website for online consults for uh, people who do not live within Oregon, as I'm only licensed to practice naturopathic medicine here in Oregon. You can visit drdans.org and learn more about this. These are wellness guidance, coaching type sessions where I can answer any questions you have, share the research within supplements, herbs, practice mindfulness techniques and different healing states of minds, interpret dreams as a way of understanding your subconscious mind and helping guide your life, and many, many more things. I do not diagnose, treat, or prescribe through drdans.org, particularly for residents who don't live in Oregon. However, my knowledge and expertise is certainly something that could be beneficial to you. I'm personally not a big fan of promotion, marketing, and all these other fields. For that reason, the Herbal Hour podcast does not run any advertisements. We don't accept any sponsorships and none of that kind of thing. So everything that's recommended here today or practitioners that are on the show, which I give links to uh, pursue their work, are purely for the uh the better well-being of people and also the natural health professions to spread the knowledge and wisdom associated with these nature-based traditions, as well as give people access to the tools that can really help them heal. Our guest today, Dr. Kirsten Wilson. Our guest today, Dr. Kirsten Wilson, is the founder of Tree Root Wellness. So if you visit that website, you can see how you can get a free 15-minute consult with Dr. Wilson. She is particularly skilled and clinically focused on all neurological conditions, any chronic injuries or sports medicine, and has a wide knowledge of many forms of body work like myofascial release, trigger point therapies, osteopathy, and much more. She also works within the field of mental health and I can't recommend her enough. She is incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, uniting together an understanding of traditions such as shamanism and the more energetic forms of healing with uh, science-based understandings of neurology. So I appreciate her a lot. That's a large part of why during this episode I asked her so many questions about these kind of topics as I myself believe in the same exact approach, which is bringing together the best of both worlds, so to speak, not being biased in either direction, not, not casting aside what science has to teach us, while also not casting aside what nature has to teach us. Uh, one is the knowledge of humanity, and the other is the knowledge of nature, and they're both incredibly important for healing as we live in a society and a culture that lives by certain rules. And many of the kind of uh, diseases of civilization, as they call them, are all manner of unwellness that happen because of the way that our culture, our society, and modern civilization functions, right? The simplest cure is truly to reconnect with a natural way of living. However, this is not always possible for everyone. Some people have nine to fives that they need to work at because they need to provide for their families, uh, have a place to live and all these kind of things. So my goal on this podcast and my practice, my work, and all these colleagues that I have on the podcast who are naturopaths and herbalists is to share what we have learned in our own experiences and work with patients to bring you those natural healing tools so you can integrate them into your life and also reconnect with nature, which in and of itself is the most healing. 
The links to my clinic and wellness consults will be in the show notes, as well as all of our lovely guest links. So you can check that out after you listen to the show or whenever you'd like. So with all that said, let's get into the show with Dr. Kirsten Wilson, naturopathic doctor, who is here today to speak with us about her insights into shamanic practice, as well as the tradition that she's from, psychology, mental health, wellness, all from a more holistic point of view. I think you guys are going to love this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast. I want to start this with a very general question. What is the role of shamanic type practices, do you think, in in medicine or healing? To me, the role is to reconnect us with our roots. And so a lot of people, whether they know they've had trauma or not in their life, they are often disconnected by the way we just live our lives. And so that's the first layer. And the second layer is that most of us, if not all of us, have had some type of either emotional or physical trauma happen. And so to me, shamanic work is another avenue to address that Mm. and deal with that root cause, um, especially when there's physical symptoms involved. Mm. What uh, what led you to that insight of uh, there being a link between uh, trauma and a person's mental wellness and in the shamanic tradition, spiritual wellness? Where did that kind of come from? Is that from your own research, things you learned? It's from my own personal journey. So mm. I've been doing my own personal work since 2005. And I started with, that's how I found out about herbal medicine and kind of how I got onto the naturopathic um, medicine path. And then after that, kind of discovered more goddess spirituality, which mm. led me into shamanism. And mm. I found the Munai Key tradition, which is based out of Peru. Mm-hmm. And I've been studying that for the last eight, eight or 10 years at this point. Mm. So. Can you um, can you tell me a little bit more about the, that tradition? Uh, what's kind of unique about it? What kind of practices they use? Um, I would say what's unique is uh, there's an organization in town that I'm a part of called Rising Fire, and they mm-hmm. create a medicine wheel that's really based in doing your personal work. And they integrate the shamanic practices of the Caro tribe with traditional psychology. And so by integrating both, we get to a deeper layer. So some of the practices from the Caro is um, fire ceremony. So fire ceremony is a way to give prayers and have them be burnt and released into the world. Mm. And so that's something I participate in often whenever I'm working something. So if you have something come up, you can do fire ceremony to pray into what are called prayer sticks and work with the fire to help you um, release the stuck energy. Mm. And they have different principles. So there's no good or bad in their tradition. Their philosophy is that there is uh, hucha or heavy energy Mm is what like often feels sticky or where anxiety or depression might come from. Like mm-hmm. it feels just heavy. And then there's Sami, which is light energy, but they're not good or bad. It's not that you need more Sami or more Hucha. Everyone has different varieties of both. Um, but when we have an emotional experience, often we need to mulch the Hucha to release it. And fire ceremony can help you with that. There's fire breathing. And then there's principles like soul loss, which is pretty consistent throughout shamanic cultures. And so doing soul retrievals or extraction of energy, because when we ruminate in our mind, we actually build this fluid energy that needs to be extracted so that we can feel into our inner knowing. Mm. So it has a lot of principles like that. And there's um, there's all kinds of rituals that they do to honor all aspects of life. Yeah, you know, something that I found very um, 
interesting that I was reading in uh, research about uh, people with schizophrenia. So there was this research study where they looked at people who have schizophrenia, you know, visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations and things in the uh, here in the West. And they looked at how how that differed from people in India and other places in Asia. What they found was actually very, very fascinating. And this is kind of where it ties into this topic. They found that the the nature of the uh, visions and things that were heard in uh, India predominantly were of a positive nature. Uh, experiences of the, the divine, experiences of uh, like prophecy or a blessing, more in general good. Whereas they found in the West, in general, the, the visions, hallucinations, uh, whatever they may be called, uh, were of a much more negative character. They were more uh, uh, fear-based. They were more uh, paranoia. They were more uh, distressing. And, and it was, it was very clear that there was a difference. So the same exact illness, you, you can call it, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it an illness because it's hard to say what visions, because visions could be a part of a normal, healthy human. But, but the interesting point they made is that because the culture of the East is different there, it's viewed as, uh, it could be like a gift. It could be something useful to the to the people of the town, of course, the shamanic traditions, that's the classic way that they find who becomes the shaman is people who start having visions and having a lot of troubles when they're younger. And they take those people, help them through it. Then those people learn how to help other people. But in the West, it, it was completely different. It was viewed as if you have visions, you're crazy and you should go get help and all these kind of fear narratives. So same visions, completely different character, depending on what the people around you think about it. Um, and that research really got me thinking into the question of how many people right now are on heavy, heavy doses of medication or are in psychiatric hospitals that in another culture would have been found from a young age and would have became great healers and shamans. That's what that made me think about. Um, and just the way that mental health is, is viewed in general, it's, there's no positive connotation to it. It's just negative. No. And there's a um, lack of choice. So mm. I had a recent conversation with a mentor of mine, who's a shaman about psychosis. And like how is psychosis different than a vision quest? Cause a vision quest is what the Kara tribe uses um, to kind of basically induce vision sometimes, but create an experience and an opening to allow um, inner messages to come through. And so you go into the woods for like three days without food. And there's a camp below that's holding space and holding a fire, an ongoing fire throughout the experience. Um, and that's intentional, right? There's an intentional... Um, vision quest that's occurring. It's on, it's that's, on purpose. It's not it's something that's purpose. coming out of nowhere and surprising. Like they're, they want it to happen. So when it so, happens, they, this is a good sign. Yeah. But psychosis isn't that way. It's like an yeah. unintentional vision quest that takes them fully out of reality. And so I think part of that is the way our culture has developed. Like you're saying is it's so suppressed that there's no space. So now it's coming out sideways and people mm. are getting hit. And I don't, I think it's bigger than that too. That's like the mental health version. And then we have to add environmental toxins to that understanding that that is also impacting the physiology of the brain, making it even more challenging when someone has a mental health crisis mm. or challenge. So what, what kind of things are happening in the brain of someone where something like this is happening. Um, is there like some particular uh, cascade of neurochemicals that happens in psychosis or a schizophrenia, or we can just speak about generally 
in your experiences with patients? Um, generally, my understanding is figuring out what the root cause of the psychosis is. So mm-hmm. is it a, a true chemical imbalance, which is mm-hmm. where I think Western docs mostly treat from mm-hmm. is like, you've got too much dopamine around. And so it's causing you to be a bit schizophrenic. And so I know dopamine's one of the things that gets elevated. Mm-hmm. So then they forget to look at things like mold toxicity So if you're exposed to a moldy building, which is rampant in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. that can, it's bad. It's, it's so bad here. It is so bad. And if you're that 25% that doesn't clear it, it then actually the mycotoxins, so not the mold itself, but the toxins it produce then impact the brain causing significant neuroinflammation that can lead to psychosis. And there's actual research showing that. And then Lyme disease affects the brain as well. I don't know as much about that one. Um, And then we've got uh, traumatic brain injuries and PTSD Mm. can also have uh, psychosis-like presentations when it's severe. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I heard this interesting point made about the difference between the kind of more spiritual religious visions and the psychosis. Mm-hmm. And it seems that almost unanimously from, from what I've heard, read, and, and, and seen in some uh, patients that, that the hallucinations of psychosis are actually very different than a vision, although they have some similar characteristics in that you're seeing something that other people can't see. But in the psychosis it's like a horrible, horrible state to be in and disharmony. No one is ever happy when they're psychotic. It just doesn't happen. But somebody who does, you know, a lot of meditation one day and has like a breakthrough vision or something like that, you know, they're floating on a cloud for days and they're actually even more grounded in reality than they were before. They're more present. So it, it, it's almost like they're like polarities or something like extremes. They're both visions, but they're completely on the other side of each other. Agreed. But that's where I go back to choice. Mm. Like my understanding inside of it being around choice, because if you're meditating or you're intentionally doing a shamanic journey or you're choosing to take ayahuasca or you're Mm -hmm. choosing to go into the woods in a fasting state, those are all choices. You're actively choosing to bring it forward. But psychosis feels like, you're getting hit by a bus completely T-boned on the road, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have no cognizant that it's coming. You're not choosing for that to be your experience. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point is like the seeking for it. Another thing that comes to mind too is the fact that uh, the visionary experience produced by uh, shamanic practice or um, uh, sacred plant medicine AKA psychedelic. Um, it's by definition temporary. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, you can meditate for 12 hours and nothing could happen. And some people, they meditate very deeply and they have a vision, but it's, it's, it's temporary. It doesn't like fundamentally change the structure of their brain, but it sounds like psychosis is there's so many factors that go into it. Like the physiological, the psychological, all of them add up and they create, almost this cascade, which is not temporary or it's temporary ish, but it is not induced by them. So it can't be as easily uninduced. No. And there's an issue with Mm self-regulation, right? Not only don't they have a choice, their ability to self-regulate is really limited. And I do think. So degrades and degrades gets worse. They don't eat, they don't sleep. And then it spins them out further. Yeah. So. Like when you're choosing to do something for healing, which is what I see the shamanic practices being a resource for, mm-hmm. um, you're usually also choosing, I'm going to self-regulate and make sure I'm eating and nourishing myself. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, even in those uh, terms like psychosis and hallucinations, there's this tendency that I've, I've noticed in our culture 
and having read various different sources uh, of psychology like Carl Jung and, and others, more meaning-based, more symbolic-based traditions, that I, f- I feel that one of the main issues in modern-day mental health and psychiatry is the pathologizing of mental states um, of any character, whether that's, you know, quote-unquote depression after a spouse dies or uh, anxiety because you have an event coming up or things that are not pathologies at all, or somebody has a vision after they take a plant. Um, But pathologizing it, uh, at the end of the day, we really actually just don't know what it is. You know, like it's been talked about in ancient traditions that there's these visions and often they have a very meaningful character, but we don't, we never really know, is this a pathology or is this a gift? Is this a psychosis or is this a vision? No, I'm totally with you there. I think it's individual and we have to be really careful with our language when we're talking to Mm -hmm. patients because it quickly becomes very shameful, very fast, Mm -hmm. even without the intent, because that's what the medical model has created. Right. If you have a, you know, a vision that you didn't plan on having, how likely is, is that person to go to the doctor when they know they're probably just going to think I'm crazy, even if I think I saw something that was really significant to me. And they might even put me on medications or force me to go to a hospital against my will, even though I feel completely fine and normal other than that vision. So the amount of people having these occurrences, I would assume is far, far greater than what is seen because of the stigma, the social stigma around it is, uh, visionary even- experience. I had an experience recently with a new patient who came to see me because I partner between the worlds, right? Like I Mm. do shamanic work with naturopathic medicine and Mm. she was describing flying in the clouds after doing, she's a shaman herself Mm. and uh, kind of the meditative experience example you gave. And so she described that. And then she's like, then I feel like I'm landing on the pavement. And she was like, wait, wait, I'm not bipolar. Like she got really concerned that I was about to label her as bipolar because it was going from high to low. I'm like, no, that's your experience. You're giving me visual to work with Mm -hmm. so that we can use the imagery to help you get where you want to go and improve the anxiety and depression that's happening as well as some of the physical fatigue. Mm -hmm. That's a rough one. The term bipolar. I have, um, uh, a patient who's was brought in for bipolar type assessment. And um, my observations were that it is way too early to start considering s- such a harsh life sentence in some cases. And in addition, the DSM and the categorizations in the DSM, they have a lot of use and purposes but they originate from, from my understanding from a desire to communicate research findings so that, you know, psychiatrists can, uh, and psychologists can talk to each other about what even their patients are like and have some, uh, framework for how do we name it this thing. And that's part of the reason I found that DSM has, you know, it needs three or seven characteristics, but that's more of a statistical research-based model and not the same thing, not the same kind of pathology as if somebody says you have hepatitis, because that's like a distinct thing. There's the histology that you can look at. But if you say somebody has bipolar, a hundred people with bipolar have a hundred different types of bipolar mood patterns, one can say. Well, and there is some consistency, but it's hard to say, are they all the same type or are they all the same cause? Are they all the same treatment? Well, I feel like it misses the mark because mm-hmm. it's you're putting everyone into a box and then you're putting shame around that box, whether they realize it or not. And so people end up in this box they don't know how to get out of. And what actually is causing the bipolar? Like, I want to know what is underneath. Mm-hmm. What is the true root cause? Like, and often it's something to do with her emotional world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's 
more shamanic and they need some integrations, but what is the root cause? Yeah. What is and causing it. Yeah. What is, what is, what is the predisposition to this pattern? Uh, of course it has familial inheritance. Um, and what is the difference between somebody who has this pattern, who is, who has a really good life is very fulfilled. Uh, they're able to fulfill their creativity because what I've noticed is that, um, uh, people who have that kind of bipolar pattern, they tend to be very uh, creatives, artists, that, that type of type. Let me just turn up this, this phone. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, I've noticed that there's these kind of interesting personality qualities of people that would be called bipolar, but uh, it, it doesn't really do justice to, as you said, well, you know, why do they get in that really, really high energy state and don't sleep and get like, if any person doesn't sleep for a long time, that that's, that's basically what happens. Like these are just normal uh, gradations of the mind. Some people are more susceptible to it being more sudden, but um, if somebody doesn't sleep for like three days and drinks tons and tons of coffee, I mean, you can induce a manic episode in somebody who has no history of bipolar, who has, and, and even from stress. Um, it seems to be like that the minds, the neurochemistry, the brain, the nervous system, they function along like a kind of balancing range. And they're always, you know, seeking to balance what I've, what I've seen with that kind of bipolar type, I really, it's more like a constellation of symptoms that happen than like an actual disorder I've been finding. Um, so there's a period of very, very high activity, right? Uh, a lot of interest in things, uh, less need for sleep, then like the sleep doesn't happen. And then it kind of spirals and becomes, it goes from the kind of pleasant type of stimulation to the irritable, to the psychotic at its worst ends. Um, and after that period goes through and the body is basically put through the ringer because, you know, somebody in a manic episode for one or two weeks, they maybe slept a few days that week, those two weeks. Uh, they probably didn't eat food regularly. They probably because of they were in that state, they did more impulsive things like doing drugs and drinking more alcohol, getting into trouble, causing more stress for themselves. And then when the body can't take anymore, the depressive phase for usually much longer for like three to four months sometimes. So that, you know, as it was called in the past manic depressive disorder, I actually think that that might be a better word actually for it. I think the old term is a little bit better because it's really just talking about there's periods of mania and there's periods of depression and it's a disorder because it's not pleasant for the person experiencing it. It's not like the usual types of depression that people get when something happens. It's there is, there's definitely a neurochemical element to it, but going back to what you said, what's the root for what their triggers are, what causes it, et cetera. So where does, where does shamanism play into this to bring so, it back to that? Shamanism for me plays in after I've kind of used my naturopathic toolbox and I'm like, okay, all the medicine we talk about horses and zebras, right? Like I've eliminated the big horses that we need to treat in order to kind of prevent an episode from occurring. Mm -hmm. None of those are there. So then if, that's the case. Then I start looking at childhood trauma. So, or past lives, right? Like, is there something in their energetic and emotional bodies that's now impacting this to occur? So that's when you can travel and do shamanic journeys with patients to uncover the unseen. So I see shamanic work being the avenue to see what we can't see. It's the mm -hmm. unseen work. It's looking, it's also using symbolism. So for patients that had pre-verbal trauma, 
shamanism is hugely beneficial Mm. because you don't have to know what happened and you don't have to have words. Almost all the other therapies in traditional psychology want you to put words to the trauma, but what if you can't? Right. To rationalize an irrational event that was experienced irrationally, not through analysis. Yeah, you were two months old and you were given up for adoption or it's a birth trauma. Like you don't have words because you literally didn't have words. Right. Pre, pre language. Uh, uh, Carl Jung talks about that in the shamanic traditions and mythology. And this is that uh, they speak more in those uh, symbolic images, the same kind of symbolic images, which are natural to the psyche and manifest in dreams. So dreams are a manifestation of that pre-verbal, pictorial-based mind language, one can say, that is not learned. It's almost like inbuilt. Yeah, and then Michael Mead talks about how we actually learn through story. So if we Mm -hmm. learn through story, pre-verbal trauma aside, then we actually need symbolism to grow and heal. Hmm. So by using myths, so he talks about using myths to learn and grow, mm-hmm. but shamanism uses the mythic and symbolism to get there. So like mm-hmm. if you see a serpent in the underworld, what does that mean to the patient? Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean to the patient? Like I can intuitively track what's coming through through my system and share it, but it only has an effect if it resonates for the individual. Mm-hmm. Because they have to integrate it. Absolutely, yeah. That's precisely um, the dream uh, dream interpretation, which is something that I I love using in my practice. That's uh, it. Pretty much is like a shamanic type of uh, tradition in in my understanding. It's working with their natural images, which are produced. And it's, it's funny that even people who don't really believe dreams have meaning, and it's popular in culture to say, oh, it's just random firing of neurons, or you were hungry, so you dreamt of a burger, type of silliness. Um, but whether or not one believes in the meaning of dreams, dreams have a deep effect on people. Like if you have a patient or someone has this terrible nightmare and wakes up in cold sweats and they say, Oh, it was just a dream. It's nothing. It's like, well, why did it happen? And, and even more so, why did it happen the way it did in your dream? So like why the particular character that was scary and why the particular uh, action that happened or the strange image you don't understand, why is that associated with fear? So they're, to, to discount dreams is the same thing as discounting thoughts. Cause well, the, way the same been, thing is discounting shamanic journey. Cause it's yeah. basically a visualization, but mm-hmm. you have to trust what you're finding. Just like mm-hmm. you trust a dream. It's a dreaming mm-hmm. in reality. Mm-hmm. It's conscious. It's a conscious dream. Mm-hmm. And um, they could be in some sense, there's some theories and I, I don't know how, how true this is, Uh, Because dreams aren't very well understood, Um, especially that they've gone into uh, more of the kind of like neurophysiology behind it rather than what is the content of the dreams. The kind of psychoanalytic traditions have fallen out of favor in in medicine and psychiatry where they were actually analyzing, well, what is why did you dream of this color bird? Why did you dream of a blue bird and not a green bird? And what does that mean to you? Uh, these kind of things. Uh, I wonder if that the visions that happen in sleep, which is just another way to talk about dreams, uh, are are the same or similar process as to what happens if one induces a kind of shamanic trance or even has visions on a psychedelic. Is it the same? I wonder if it's the same process, uh, the same capacity of the mind, let's say, or the brain to uh, have internal images, I guess you can call it, that are not necessarily seeable by other people? I think um, they're slightly different in the way, I would say the depth that they go in. Because mm. I, the way I envision like psychedelics gets deeper into the unconscious. 
And when you do a shamanic journey, uh, you're getting into some of the unconscious material, but you can only get so far. You're only going to see what you're ready to see. Mm. You're not going to see much more than that. Um, and then dreams often, I think they're just, they're more similar to a shamanic journey than a psychedelic journey. I just imagine that psychedelics uh, kind of amp up all the neurochemistry and almost get the person emotionally deeper into the unconscious material. Mm. And so the symbolism is, could be different, but it could mm-hmm. also be the same. Yeah. And it depends on the, uh, the psychedelic used because they all have their own characteristic type of visions and experiences, although they, at least for the positively reported experiences, they move around this similar thread of that feeling of uniting of feeling presence or truth or having like a foresight or an insight into the past. A lot of trauma stuff comes up with the psychedelic experience. Um, That's like, usually that's where the quote, quote unquote bad trip type of thing happens is when all of a sudden someone who has not really been thinking maybe too much of their past or they put it away, it's kind of repressed. All of a sudden that comes up with like intense force and it can't go back in because there's a chemical substance influencing the mind. Uh, so it's kind of more, I view them as catalysts. And I, I like, I like what you said about like uh, amping up or increasing what's already occurring, uh, which is very accurate in terms of uh, LSD or psilocybin because they're very, uh, they mimic serotonin. They're very, very similar in, uh, in the chemical structure to serotonin. You look at them side by side, it's like a little change. So they, they go into the same spot where our natural neurotransmitter goes. So, but they activate it much more. And that's just what we know about how they work too. That's like a very, you know, specified reductionistic way to view how they're affecting. Cause they obviously have a lot of other effects, not just giving someone a lot of serotonin wouldn't, give someone the psychedelic experience it doesn't really work like that um no there's more constituents and i think when you're talking about the bad trip it's important to remember that this is why doing foundational work and not jumping in without an understanding especially if you've had trauma and doing some of the practices without psychedelics on board can be really helpful um and for sure especially if there's some some uh, some, some troubles, difficulty or suffering in that kind of mental, emotional realm, because, uh, it depends on so much, right. The, the whole psychedelic movement in like the 1970s, it it had a lot of good intentions, but it ended up kind of badly in certain ways. And one of the ways is that, uh, the influence of set and setting on the experience. So the mindset, so what is the mindset going in? Are they, you know, just out of a terrible divorce and they immediately want to take a very, very high dose of psilocybin? It's a real gamble. Could either be incredibly insightful to it or it can cause spiraling or a terrible experience because the mind is already in a certain place. Do they, are they with friends that they don't trust or are they with friends that they trust? Are they, uh, is there a shaman helping them, guiding them, keeping them safe, creating, as you said, like a container playing music chants to keep calm and, and watching out for anything that uh, is, is going wrong and helping them put themselves back into place. Cause it's uh, the mind in that state is very, very malleable. So just as easily as someone can spiral into a bad experience is just as easily as they could be pulled out by somebody who says, listen, like you're okay. Everything's fine. Take a deep breath. You're safe just the substance you're taking, it's going to pass and they can instantly go into a state of like bliss. So it, it's very, uh, the, the substance in and of itself, I don't think does the healing. It's the person individually and the person who's working with them. If there, if there is somebody working with them, because the substance itself does not necessarily produce healing. It's what, how we interact, how we think differently how we perceive differently with that substance. So it's more like a tool. 
it is a tool. And I think what I've really loved with the tradition that I've studied with for a long time for my own personal work is that you don't necessarily need that tool. Not everyone yeah. needs that tool. And having some foundation of knowing that I had the tools to work the experience without an altered state other than yeah. what I create myself is really empowering that mm-hmm. I don't need an external force to get me to a certain place. And there are periods and times where for certain patients it's beneficial, but it's mm-hmm. not beneficial for everyone. Yeah. And there's a, there's a big split in terms of, uh, so before we started the podcast, I was talking a little bit about uh, Murcia Eliad and the book Shamanism, which was this wide world uh, scouring of all the different traditions that could be called shamanic. One of the main categories that that he separated them based on was, were they using plants or were they not using plants? There was like, a vi- it was very, very depending on the area, depending on the specific tradition, and there was a lot of both. There's the traditions that used uh, more rituals, dance, singing, uh, non-substance-based, non-plant-based. And then there's the traditions that the plant-based was absolutely integral to the whole ritual, the experiences. Um, but interestingly, they were never like even in the plant-based, like the sacred plant-based traditions, that ritual element was never separate from it. It just, you would never have somebody, you know, come into a clinic, take a psilocybin tablet and sit there and be watched. Something about that approach worries me a lot, uh, especially with, uh, you know, measure 109 and psilocybin therapy becoming uh legal as a, as a form of therapy. If you go through certain facilitation here in Oregon, um, I think that could have such good effects, but it, it totally depends on the person, you know, is it the right person for it is what's the setting? What's the set? How do you go about the experience? Should people who have no knowledge of any shamanic type practices or mythology or anything that's kind of related to that experience, should they be able to kind of just sit there, give it and watch and make sure, you know, their blood pressure doesn't get too high. Um, We'll see. Well, what do you, what do you think about that topic? I'm sure you have a. Um, It goes back to what the question we started with, which is like, how do we create a culture that's actually connected to the earth? Mm. Because if you continue, like you're saying to create, yeah. So you're using a sacred medicine, but you're not using it in a sacred way. Right. So how it's not going to work in the same way if you're not using it in a sacred way. Right, right. How do we, and what's the integration? Like, are you having them connect and do earthing or something that's a little more mainstream to allow them to feel an inner connection to the world around them? Mm -hmm. Because if they don't have a connection, I don't, I'm sure there'll be some benefit because there's some neuroscience behind it, right? Yeah, Especially with microdosing things like that, there's some comparisons with antidepressants and microdosing that that look really promising. So it, even if it does get taken up as like an alternative to medication, overall, I think that's probably good. But I 100% agree with what you're saying, which is that that's like very superficial and and just skimming the surface in terms of what can be done with it with the proper. Um, ritual setting, understanding, uh, connection to the sacred, et cetera. Which is kind of where I try to meet my patients is like, how do we reconnect to you through these different modalities and start to unwind some of the trauma? Because if we don't do that, there's going to be blocks all over the place because you're going to continually feel disconnected Mm. because that's how we deal with trauma. And so we disconnect, we dissociate, we leave our bodies. And how do we come back to relationship with ourselves and the earth? If Mm. you don't include the earth inside that, I don't, I'm sure you can get there to a degree, but I don't think you can fully become fully embodied without realizing the connection around you. There, for, for these kind of experiences seems that 
one of the necessary ingredients is some practice, some form. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be even from any particular tradition, but it has to have, the person has to have some personal feeling connection to nature, to the world, to the universe, to their community. It could be on any scale. It really just comes down to I'm part of something greater than myself. And that is incredibly freeing, uh, right? Because what is, what is rumination? What is kind of neurotic type symptoms? What is trauma other than a remembering and a focusing on one's own identity and, and who one is? whether or not it's true anymore, which is a kind of interesting with the, the effects of trauma, right? It might happen a long time ago. The event has passed. The person's not even there anymore, but it still is like current and, you know, psychologically too. Um, I, I wanted to ask you something about trauma. It's always uh, interests me, this question why why do certain people ha- have a traumatic experience and other people don't with similar situations like what is the is that is that individual like you know two people get into a car accident one of them you know just gets a minor injury and a few days later, they're a little bit shaken up, but they're fine. And another person goes into full on, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from, from the same, I mean, objectively the same occurrence. What do you think is the difference there? Um, the first thing I always look at is what are the other underlying things? Mm. So does one of the people that was in the car accident also have hypermobility? And so all their tissue is super lax. And so they're more susceptible to having potential slow healing or more difficult time healing from it. Um, Or do they have other inflammatory factors that are already present? And then there's the idea of resilience. So everyone has different affinities is kind of what we call them of like affinities being what you attract. So some people are just going to react differently in a situation. And then that reaction is going to what then impacts the neurobrain chemistry to shift and change. And we can use resilience both on the emotional level, but we can also use resilience on stress resilience, right? How resilient are your tissues to stress? So if two people were in a car wreck and one person has less resilience because they just had a stressful conversation the day before. And so they've got a bunch of cortisol pumping through their system. Mm -hmm. They're less, probably less resilient than the person that's kind of in an even keel state in their life. Ah, so like the, almost like the physiological health of the body, the nervous system, that makes a lot of sense. actually. Yeah. And then what's their vagal tone? Like you got to look at all the factors that are impacting. Do they have IBS going into that car accident? Makes them like more susceptible. These factors, they all uh, come together in a kind of perfect storm where the catalyst switches and then then, you know, something unexpected happens. Like they start having panic attacks after that, for example. Yeah. And there's a lot of factors that uh, we could talk at another point, but things like ADHD, where it Mm. actually creates um, more excitability. So there's more glutamate in the system. So if you get hit in a car wreck and have ADHD, you are more likely to have more severe symptoms. You already have glutamate running and then it's released again after the accident because of the brain injury. Mm. And so now you have a double whammy. You have ADHD on top of brain trauma. And so now, of course, you're anxious and hypervigilant and you feel anxiety as soon as you go into the grocery store because there's physiology happening. Mm. That's that's so true. I, I I, I love the way you you tie it back to that. That's what that's what I've been finding a a lot uh, in in helping patients along in their healing process. That 
depending on the person, there's like kind of different elements at play. Sometimes it's more in the field of the psyche and psychology, and that's where you work. But even in the cases where it seems like it's pure psychology, there's still a physiological component that you could work on. And, um, and even when it seems like it's purely physiological, there's always some psychological, spiritual component. The separation between the two, I feel like is artificial. It's conceptual. There, there is no separation between physiology and your mind. There's not. And I feel like we're, we're going to talk research for a second. The research I've read, because I work a lot with brain injuries, Mm -hmm. like traumatic from car accidents or football injuries. And so in the research, it actually shows that the impact to the cells around the neurons is the same if you get hit in the head from a car wreck or something like that, like Mm -hmm. a physical assault versus having PTSD from some kind of intense emotional trauma. Mm. The inflammation impacts the brain in the same way and can both lead to neurodegenerative conditions. And so saying, you know, this whole idea that we minimize mental health feels completely unreasonable to me when you Mm -hmm. look at the neurophysiology of what happens and yeah. can see that it's also greatly impacting the brain, the gut, and all those areas. And it's just as it's validating to my patients to understand that their brain is being impacted by the trauma and there's some things we can do to help cope with it. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it is, it, it's so validating for a, a patient to hear that, oh, it, you know, it's not all in your head. Like there, there's no such thing. Like every thing in the head, quote unquote, as you said, has a physiological component, how much that's a factor that depends on each person. What part of it is the factor that depends on each person. It's different. Maybe one person is more gut related. Another person is more sleep related. Another person it's more substance related. Another person it's more physical injury related. Um, and that's kind of our work, right? As, as naturopaths is finding what is the individual person's cause for that and kind of seeing beyond the, the, the name or the label or the diagnosis, which is really just a tool that'll help us understand better, not to, you know, put someone in a box, so to speak, even though they don't really belong in a box. No, it's teaching them to be empowered in their health. So Mm -hmm. it's giving them the knowledge so that they can guide their health journey and figure out ways. And then I'm a guide along the way, right? Like I'm, I'm a helper. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they get to figure out, but the labels are there for the insurance red tape and the diagnostics and the legalities. um, And to make sure we didn't miss anything big. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, if one keeps the, uh, my experience has been, if one keeps this in mind and then still looks into all the research one can find, what everyone says about it, it, uh, for example, like under the, let's take a term like bipolar disorder. If knowing that this is kind of a term that classifies this and that, and one still researches it, keeping that in mind, it, it adds to knowledge rather than keeping one limited in what, like at the, at the back of my mind, when I'm doing research for a patient about bipolar or something, I'm looking up a lot of articles on bipolar and supplements that could help and herbs that can help and this and that. But in the back of my mind, I'm trying to figure out what is bipolar actually? Is this, is it really the thing that they're saying it is? So I feel like for me um, and naturopathic doctors are really seem to be really good at that kind of integrative model of healthcare where, you know, an herb or a medicine, depending on what's needed, some lean more heavily in one direction over another, but keeping really just keeping an open mind about medicine. I mean, it's not figured out, especially when it comes to the mind and neurology that that stuff is like, that's like the most ancient uh, archaic type of, you know, medicine. It's still not, it hasn't been figured out at all. Not even a little bit. I don't think we ever will, which is where I go back to how do we 
bring story in and mythology and symbology into the medical paradigm. Right. Because patients need both of those things. They need people like what it sounds both of us are doing, which is holding the sacred and the spiritual essence with the medical paradigm so that we can actually meet the patient where they're at and help Mm -hmm. them figure it out. Treating, you know, the whole person, a person is not just a body. They're not just a mind. They're not just spirit. You know, they're all those things uh, at all times. And they're all, you know, even in um, one of the approaches that I really like taking in terms of uh, how I go about the therapeutic process is looking at, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, mm-hmm. the pyramid where as you go, like the bottom is the foundations of health, like diet, water, uh, sleep, like the basic physiological aspects that impact health and a lot of other things that uh, we we talked about. And then as you go up all the way to the top, it's uh, self-actualization or what is meaning and purpose in someone's life. You, you stack up and go up this uh, uh, pyramid, it brings you to this purpose and meaning of life. However, having the purpose and meaning of the life also goes down and fixes everything else, right? Like sometimes I've noticed that one of the biggest obstacles to health for any person is they don't, they don't feel that they know or have a meaning or fulfillment or a deeper purpose to their life. And it could be something really simple, like being really good at your work and helping others or enjoying family or having good, it doesn't, they don't have to necessarily be super mystical things that, but something kind of beyond oneself that makes one feel like my life is worth living. Now, if one doesn't have this feeling of excitement about life and that their life is worth living, why the hell would they eat a kale salad? There isn't really, without the desire to live and live well and uh, be happy and and healthy, have essentially a reason to live for, not just like have to live to nine to five it, but a reason of this, this is why I'm here. And it's all personally derived. That actually finding that in and of itself sometimes fixes everything else, fixes the diet, fixes the exercise, everything just falls into place because then it's like, like let's say somebody discovers that their passion is to be an artist and they never knew it. And all of a sudden they're doing all this painting stuff. Now they start realizing, Oh, like if I don't sleep as much, I don't paint as good. So now they start sleeping better. They start sleeping better, start feeling better, painting more. They start realizing, Oh, I want more inspiration. They start going for walks in nature. Every, like there's a lot of ways to approach it based on the person. And I think one of the things that has seemed important to me is, you know, meeting the patient exactly where they are in terms of their beliefs and not like putting my spiritual beliefs or anything, but seeing, you know, cause spirituality and, and these terms are all just words for like a true human experience and everyone interprets it differently. Um, like some people interpret it more through nature. They have this view to, uh, as nature is like divinity itself, other people more in like the universe and energy other people and just like their community. And uh, they're all the same thing. They're all that personal uh, meaning and significance. Um, and that is, that's, it, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it takes a lot of uh, effort and somebody to really look and, and help or that person to really reflect a lot because there is no ready-made answer, right? Like who, who can, who can tell you like, what is meaningful to you. It's like, they can help you and be like, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this ask questions, but it's, it's our journey ultimately. I totally agree. I'll just end with this little uh, piece is I think it's important for the patient to be validated and understand how they may not fit in the paradigms of society and figuring out ways to recreate it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they're at a nine to five job and that's not working, figuring out ways to allow their unique nervous system to be supported because mm. almost all of our systems in place do not support most of us. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I think it's important to validate that for the mm-hmm. patient, help them um, create yeah. systems to actually support that growth so that they can reach that um, peak of that mountain 
and really mm. live their their dreams and their purpose, whatever that looks like. That's beautiful. So I definitely want to have you back on the podcast. We're going to finish up here. I know you have uh, somewhere to be. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, next episode, if you're if you're interested, I'd, I'd love to talk more about uh, neurophysiology, uh, like brain injuries, TBIs. I have some uh, personal uh, experiences in, in my family of, of people who had very severe uh, TBIs. So definitely a topic I'm very interested in. So um, thank you for being on the show. Where, where can people... Where can people find you? What's your website? How, how does somebody get an appointment with you if they're interested in? If you're interested, I do free 15-minute consults. And so you can email me at info at treerootwellness.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can direct you whether my private practice, which is Tree Root Wellness, which is just cash-based, or whether the patient would be a better fit at Medipro Holistic Health, mm-hmm. which is over uh, in Beaverton on the border of Hillsborough. Uh-huh. If you're outside Oregon or Washington, I do work with people um, consulting in my private practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, your your name is spelled K-I-R-S-T-E-N? I-N. I-N. All right. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Uh, Kirsten Wilson and uh, Dr. Dan having an excellent conversation. Hope everyone uh, enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, it seems we're, we're both very, very passionate about mental health, especially the, the, the spiritual mystical component of it integrated into all of the other things, into the herbs and using uh, supplements and uh, using lifestyle therapies and all that. I feel like that's, you know, it's the secret ingredient in the dish that you know makes one plan work versus another is the part that matters most to people which is what matters most to them (laughs) so uh it's been the herbal hour podcast thank you guys so much for listening be sure to uh subscribe if you like the show and we shall continue exploring the world of natural healing and as it is called alternative health although i don't think it's alternative i think it's holistic